This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's get into some analysis of what we heard, Carol, because we've got the team assembled. They've been waiting patiently uh, to walk us through this. Uh, It was an interesting uh, hearing. And listen, these are the guys who are on the front lines, uh, Paolo Mnuchin. Well, I feel like over the last 16 weeks, 15, 16 weeks, these are the two individuals that have really been uh, at the forefront when it comes to programs to take care of businesses, large and small, as well as individuals in the U.S. economy. So let's get into it. Uh, Joining us right now is, of course, our Michael McKee, Bloomberg News International Economics and Policy Correspondent, Mike McKee, joining us from our studios in New York. Also, Jeffrey Cleveland, Chief Economist at Payton and Regal. He's on the phone from Los Angeles. And Mike, Let me start with you. Anything that really jumps out? I know we've been hearing certainly from Jay Powell a lot over the last few weeks, but anything in particular that stood out for you? Nothing a lot uh, market moving. I was a little surprised that there wasn't more criticism of some of the mistakes that were made during the uh, funding of various programs. Uh, The Government Accountability Office last week with a rather scathing report about that. If anything, it might have been the idea um, that Jay Powell suggested they might be willing to lower the threshold for uh, Main Street loans. There doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in that at the moment. He said 300 banks have signed up, but they're not getting a lot of companies interested in that. And and there was some concern that it was going to be a little too late. Also, uh, Steve Mnuchin said that they were willing to consider some sort of program for commercial mortgage-backed uh, securities. Uh, uh, so if if they um, do those two things and expands the lending programs, maybe they get more money out. Powell, of course, declining to get involved in saying what kind of stimulus they should do, but both men making the case they probably do need to mo- do more stimulus. So, Jeffrey Cleveland, come on in here, Chief Economist for Payton and Regal out in Los Angeles. Uh, what does the Fed and what does the Treasury need to be doing uh, at this moment, especially as, and listen, you are at, uh, unfortunately, what many are considering the new epicenter of this in, in Los Angeles with this outbreak or this surge or resurgence, depending on your perspective, that we're hearing. What needs to be done from a fiscal and monetary perspective? Yeah, Jason, I thought the best exchange was between David Scott of Georgia and uh, the Secretary of Treasury and the, and the Fed chair. And, he, you know, he really highlighted something that clients are asking me, you know, every day. Uh, are, you know, what's been done? Is it helping Main Street or is it helping Wall Street? And I think Powell answered that very well. He said uh, what they're doing will help the Main Street. It will help the economy by keeping... Uh, the market's open, you know, by keeping access to capital available, uh, by keeping financial conditions easy. That should help Main Street help the economy as as things reopen. So I thought that that was a, a good exchange. But it, I think it highlights the, the problem that uh, most people have right now. We, we have 25 million unemployed, yet we're recording pro- uh, the best quarter for the stock market since uh, 1998. So, you know, meeting that is difficult. I think, you know, if you watch that whole hearing, you, 
it's infrastructure, right? How do you get capital to mm. where it is needed most in a timely fashion? There, there is no easy way to do that. As the, the Treasury Secretary said, they're using the banking system, so the Main Street lending facility is uh, you know, the obvious candidate, but it's taken a while to get that ramped up. And uh, as of the Fed's balance sheet, as of Wednesday, there was about $37 billion there, so it's not a huge uptake. Uh, so that's, that's a difficult uh, process. But uh, keeping financial conditions easy is the short answer to your question. Yeah, and they certainly have been doing a great job at that. Mike McKee, it's an interesting week. It's a holiday week, but there's a cho- you know, there's tons of economic news culminating in that uh, Thursday jobs report. And of course, we'll get Fed minutes tomorrow. So, I don't know what if anything is really of utmost importance in your in your view. You know, it would have probably been the jobs report because we had a good jobs report mm-hmm. last month and then everybody got excited that maybe we were getting uh to the rebound a little bit quicker. And Jay Powell said today he thought we had gotten to the rebound a little bit quicker than they had anticipated. But now with this, uh, all these emerging hotspots, you've got to wonder, as governors move to shut various industries down, they're not doing a, a wholesale shutdown, but as bars close again, uh, you wonder all the people who are on the June payrolls report, which we get on Thursday, how many of them will be on the July payrolls report? Yeah. So this is just going to move everybody's interest uh, forward a month to see. and. Because this has come back so strong in different places, it kind of makes all the data seem outdated at this point. Uh, Everything we're going to get this week isn't really going to tell us necessarily where we are because most of it's old. And it it doesn't really tell us where we're going because we don't know how long it's going to last. And so, Jeffrey Cleveland, what is the one either data point that we'll get this week or looking ahead that you're most interested in seeing and analyzing? We've been highlighting continuing claims uh, out on Thursday, you know, being, being the, the thing to watch every week. It's more timely than the jobs report. Mm-hmm. I hate to dismiss the jobs report. It's always been my favorite <laughs> economic data. Point. I feel bad doing that. But, yeah, the continuing claims data, I think, is key. Um, it more in a real-time sense. Uh, but, you know, there's great uncertainty. I think, you know, there's been some good work here. It's not just the shutdowns that are being put in place. You mentioned Los Angeles. Uh, uh, we're being told we can't go to the beach on the 4th of July, uh, but uh, it's really the fear of the virus that did the economic damage. There's a good uh, working paper out today from, from University of Chicago highlighting this. You had a big drop-off in consumer activity, but only about 7% of that is accounted for by those quote-unquote legal restrictions. Most of it is just people staying home because they're afraid. So the question is, as we see the virus count tick up yesterday, L.A. County re- recorded the highest uh, daily increase uh, so far. You know, does that cause people to shut down again, and then do we have a second round of economic effects? I think that's a really good question. Yeah, I agree with you. Michael McKee, just to wrap up, so what is it? Is it a V-shape? Is it a U-shape? Is it an upside-down Nike swoosh? Have we decided what the recovery looks like? We haven't really decided. Um, the, the working assumption of most people was a sort of a, a square root sign. Yeah. <laughs> where you you, yeah. you had a quick V and then a just a flat, but now we don't know. We could be heading into a W situation. I think the takeaway from today is the same as it's always been. The virus is in charge. Yeah. Well, All stay right. tuned, everyone, and we'll figure out what that uh, symbol will ultimately be, right, when it comes to this recovery. Yeah, and who knows? It feels like uh, we have a, a different answer every day. That's the world we're living in. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. Jeffrey Cleveland, Chief Economist for Payton and Regal, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles, and our own Michael McKee, International Economics and Policy Correspondent for Bloomberg there in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. 
hard pivot here. Um, from <laughs> no, no segue, no segue here. From Capitol Hill uh, to the heist issue, which mm. is one of our favorite things every year. Uh, we're going to be talking about it over the next couple of days, but we have to dig into a story that did phenomenally well on the Bloomberg yesterday. Claire Suddeth wrote it. She is a writer for Bloomberg Business Week, of course, joins us on the phone from Brooklyn. The case of the empty frames remains art world's biggest mystery. If that doesn't draw you in, I don't know what does, Claire. It's so phenomenal. Tell us what's going on. This is the heist of all heists in some ways. Yeah, it is. And it's also, so it's um, it's 30 years old in 1990 on St. Patrick's Day. Um, two men dressed up as Boston police officers and stole um, what has been estimated to be about half a billion dollars in artwork. And it has never been solved. So it's uh, the largest art heist in history also makes it the most famous art heist in history. It's been the subject of books and podcasts. Um, there's this whole Simpsons episode where Mr. Burns goes to prison because it turns out he stole the painting. It's, it's famous, and I, I don't want to say that I know the answer to it because what makes it so famous is the fact that it's never been solved. And there's this whole cottage industry of FBI agents and private detectives and armchair sleuths who have been trying and failing so far to come up with um, an answer. And it's funny because they all have wildly different theories and they all disagree with each other. I mean, it's really, it just reads, you know, as you said, you know, we often, Jason and I talk about, Claire, you know, things that could be adapted as a series. I mean, it just so reads like a George Clooney movie or something, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And each episode would be one of the different theories, I guess you could do. Um, yeah, it's um, it's interesting. You know, the FBI technically has been working on this for a really long time, um, and they've had different agents in charge at different points in the three decades. For a while, they thought it was in France. There was the sting in Miami. Um, really early on, they went to Japan. That turned out to definitely not be true. Um, and now their current theory is that... Um, they think the paintings were stolen by some sort of um, cabal of uh, in Boston's organized crime, and um, they've tracked it up to a certain point in the early 2000s, and then they sort of just um, don't know what happened after that. What was the security? I mean, this is an art museum, <laughs> right? There was security yeah. there. Well, I will say this is a, it, while it had an extensive art collection. It's, it's a small museum. It's private. Um, and in the 90s, um, and also the case in many museums, especially um, back then, they didn't really have a lot of security. So they had motion detectors, but, and they had a few security cameras, but not in the galleries. And actually, the overnight shift, um, which is, this happened at night, there were two guys in their mid-20s who had no real security training whatsoever. Um, one of them was a music school student, and he liked to play his trombone at night, and the other one... Um, played in a rock band and in other interviews he had said he you know sometimes may not have come to work totally sober um, <laughs> just because you know he's working the night shift at a small museum so why not um, but that didn't work out so well for them that one night 
Yeah, well, I love all the twists and turns. And, you know, as you read through the story, you've got all these sort of theories popping up. And, you know, you have, it's like, oh, it took place on St. Patrick's Day. And what does that mean? And then a couple of the robbers refer to each other as mate. So they're clearly not American. I mean, the, all these different things. And Whitey Bulger, of course, the famous criminal, makes a cameo. I mean, it's really, it, it's really you, just, right? like it's casting really just now. great. It's so good. All yeah. right. All right, Claire Sutta, thank you so much. Congrats on the story. One of the most read. It is a feature story in the heist issue, an annual uh, sort of romp that Business Week does. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Just bring you up to speed on some of the things that are going on. Uh, you know, looking at the most read stories, uh, Anthony Fauci at the top of the yes. leaderboard here in terms of what he is saying uh, around as many as 100,000 new cases per day if there's no change in terms of how we as people and governments and, and everyone else are fighting the virus. Right. On a day when global deaths succeed, 500,000 in cases top 10 million. So crucial, as we know, to containing or slowing the spread of the virus, uh, Jason, it's, it's about protecting the most vulnerable, which we know means of course, our older population. So let's get into it because uh, we know our next guest has some thoughts on it. Dr. Nir Barzilai, he is the director of the Institute for Aging Research at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He's also director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Human Aging Research and of the National Institutes of Health's Centers of Excellence in the Basic Biology of Aging. So when it comes to aging, this is the guy. He's joining us on the phone in Westchester, New York. Uh, Dr. Barzilai, uh, nice to have you here on Bloomberg Radio. Um, talk to us about the importance of understanding the most vulnerable populations, including those who are elderly, in terms of really getting a handle on this virus. Right. So not nice being with you. And I, I want to start with a misconception, and that is that there's nothing you can do about aging. Uh, I, I think we're confusing by the fact that we all end up dying, but that's not the same as we cannot do anything about aging. In fact, aging has a biology. You know, you can see it. You can see who's old and who's young. But the more important thing is this biology can be targeted. And we, uh, and when I'm saying we, geroscientists, geroscience is kind of a, a new, uh, the, the study of old is new, but we've made huge uh, progress. We went to, from hope to promise, and we know that aging can be targeted by different ways. And I think the COVID-19 just underlined how vulnerable are the elderly, but also maybe gave hope that we can actually intervene and defend the elderly host. And so what have we learned, uh, Dr. Barzilai, about, you know, what we can do, you know, taking into account everything that you just said, when it comes to COVID-19, how should we be thinking especially uh, about, as Carol said, this more vulnerable population and, and given given a, a lot of scary things that, that we're seeing out there? So, uh, you know, I, I, would, uh, I, I would mention as briefly as I can two things that are interaction with, with the environment, that is exercise and nutrition, right? Mm. Those are things that we know that uh, is going to affect aging. It's kind of tough, but it's not really tough for people who haven't walked before to start walking or to people to exercise regularly in the, uh, and do it safely. 
Um, with the nutrition, I have a specific suggestion that will affect more people than many other diets that I can tell you, and this is to start doing intermittent fasting, which really means just skipping breakfast. Uh, we call it 16-8. You could do 59 if you want, but, you know, 16-8 is if you finish dinner at 8, don't eat anything until 12 the next day. That's 16 hours. Uh, and you can do it because even if you're hungry, there's only two hours to go. And then you can eat whatever you want. Um, with this diet, you lose weight also. But more important, this is something that upregulates your defense that's important for aging. And but can can for I ask are... you, but Dr. Barzali, I want to ask you something. A lot of elderly folks have something like diabetes where they have to be very careful about you know, when they eat and how they, you know, eat in terms of maintaining their levels. So how does someone like that where losing weight can improve their health, but yet they're stuck on something like that? Yeah, well, uh, I'm actually a diabetologist. Mm. <laughs> so, and, and, and so, look, one of the things we want people to do is lose weight, uh, our diabetics. And unfortunately, only 3% of them will do that, okay? So uh, the advice and the method is good. When it comes to treatment, you know, and I don't want to spend too much time of it, but it's very adjustable, you know? If you're on insulin and you're fasting, then the insulin you should get with the meals and not with the fat, basically. So there, there's a way mm -hmm. to do it. But I, I'm, I'm not talking about diabetic people now. I'm, I'm just talking about if you're, you know, if, you, if you're now want to avoid COVID, exercise and nutrition or weight loss or, or maybe intermittent fasting is a way that you can, it does few things. It increases your immunity, it decreases your inflammation, and it increases the ability of your body to sustain a very severe disease, okay? So those all are, are good advice if you can do it. But I really wanted to talk about other things. Um, you know, for us, aging has eight hallmarks that we agree upon. And the hallmarks are really knobs that we can uh, target uh, with drugs that uh, could have a major effect on aging. And I want to talk about one of those drugs, because this drug is readily, readily available and very cheap. Unfortunately, you have to be... tell us about it in 30 seconds because we're going to run out of time, Dr. Barzlai. So just okay. briefly. It's, it's called metformin. It's a drug that's given to diabetic uh, patients. And from studies uh, with COVID-19, we know that people on metformin have uh, four times less mortality and they're hospitalized less. So what I'm saying, there are other options where we have to defend the host besides fighting the virus. All right. Well, we will uh, come explore back that. Because... Yeah, you'll have to come back and spend more time with this because I feel like you oh. are working in a number of areas that are certainly very interesting uh, to us and very critical uh, to everything that's going on in the world. Dr. Nir Barzilai is the founder of the Institute for Aging Research at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, among many other things. Uh, glad to have him with us. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Now, in this week's edition of Business Week's Small Business Survival Guide, we continue to look at how small businesses are reopening in a week where, as Jason and I just talked about, some states 
you know, are being very cautious or rolling back plans. Joining us once again is Bloomberg News editor Demetra Kessanidi. She's on the phone in uh, New York City. Joining us also is Abigail Chapin. She's owner of Abigail Rose and Lily, too. It's a women and children's clothing store that's located in Piermont, New York. She joins us on the phone from Piermont. Nice to have you both with, with us. Demetra, um, we want to get into Abigail's story, but you guys continue to take a look at what's going on in small businesses. What's the overlying trend here? Do you feel like they're finding it easier or is it continuing to be pretty difficult? I think I would say I think there are still challenges. I, it's not, you know, it's not something where there was a solution, a, um, a way forward, and you can just stick with that and not have to adjust. I think it's a constant. It, my sense from many business owners, not just Abigail, who we'll be talking to in a minute, is that there's a constant reassessment. Um, we're not seeing, you know, the problems that are happening in some other states right now. And yet that does, you know, it, it would be smart for everybody to kind of look at those things, pay attention to them, give them pause and think about what the plans are going to be. If at any given moment you again have to reassess and move in another direction because of how things are going. And so, Abigail, help us understand uh, what it does look like. From your perspective, and I have to say, I'm, I'm sort of virtually waving to you. I'm just across the, uh, just across the uh, Mario Cuomo Memorial Bridge, uh, otherwise known as the Tappan Zee Bridge, formerly known as the Tappan Zee Bridge Tappan here Z, yeah. in, uh, in Sleepy Hollow. So what are you seeing oh, yeah. over there uh, in Piermont? Um, well, we are seeing that people, I think because people are not going on vacation maybe as much, not traveling, so people from the tri-state area are coming to Piermont a lot um, on the weekends or as a day visitor. Um, but a lot of the stores, and um, ourselves included, are taking it slow to reopen. Um, we are a, a village with a lot of restaurants, a lot of really great restaurants, and the restaurants are open with outdoor seating. Um, but... Um, so that that's keeping our town really active, and people are coming to visit for that. Um, but yeah, we have a, a few stores in town that haven't opened at all, and we are kind of in an in-between phase ourselves. How hard has it been, Abigail? Well, um, we're really lucky. We've been, um, the store was my mom's. She started it. It's named for me and my sister, um, and she started it in 1986, and um, it's been in Piermont this whole time. Um, we've been through some major disasters like Hurricane Sandy and, and other um, disasters that hit Piermont really hard. Um, this is a, obviously a worldwide uh, disaster, but um, our loyal clientele has really stuck with us, and they've been. Uh, we've we shifted everything online and um, and took curbside. And originally in March, we were doing sort of local delivery, and that was keeping us um, keeping us afloat. And people were super supportive and our loyal clientele I think really wanted to support businesses that were important to them so um, we're, we're really extremely lucky for that um, but it has been definitely challenging there's so much pivoting that is taking place all the time like reassessing what's important to us we're also um, sheltering in a sort of pod with our parents who are in their 70s and my sister and I both have four-year-old daughters so we've got little ones and older people to think about. Um, so right. we don't feel comfortable just letting the world in our door. Um, when, as Demetra was saying, there's, you know, the virus is still kind of on the loose. Yeah. I mean, that's such an interesting point too, because, you know, you have to think about yourselves and, and your employees as well, because, you know, everybody is, 
you know, either going home to or, you know, even with social distancing and all that, you know, interacting with people who who could be vulnerable. And I would imagine that that weighs heavily on you. It definitely does. And um, even though so in the lower Hudson Valley region, we're in now I'm going to be confused by which phase we're in. I guess we're in the phase where we can be really fully open with a lot of restrictions on how many people can come in. Um, But we are. we're taking and we're having we're trying to keep only one customer in at a time or if two customers come in then one of us leaves our space is physically very small and there's not um a lot of ventilation we just have a door we don't have any window you know we have the shop windows but no like airflow windows and it just doesn't feel like the kind of space that you want yeah I mean, it's, for social distancing. Yeah, it's tricky. Um, Demetra, just got about 30 seconds left here. I mean, as you guys continue to cover this, um, what are you looking to do? Well, I mean, I think we're looking at more stories of just how people are approaching this, because as we've heard with other interviews, no guidance, really, right? Nobody gives you a roadmap to reopening, and everybody's different. Um, and I think it's interesting and helpful and useful to hear about the ways that stores are making these decisions. You'll read more about Abigail and Lily's decisions about their store later in the week when we do a fuller story. But we're looking to track that and just see how it's going and to stay on top of it over the long run um, when bigger decisions are going to be confronted that might be much more fundamentally challenging decisions about the longevity of the business, you know, uh, because I do think now this reality is setting upon us that it's going to be very hard to make our way through this to a point where we're really back and living the way we were living four months ago, five months ago. Yeah, for sure. That's what we're hoping to do. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both so much. Demetra Kessanides, editor for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone and Abigail Chapin. It is time for the drive to the close. One of our favorites, friend of the show. I love back when she with comes us. on. I know. I, I love when it. she comes and hangs out with us in the studio, but Me we too. are in a distant world right now. But happy to have with us Hillary Kramer, President CIO at A&G Capital. Hillary, how the heck are you? I am doing very, very well. Thank you, Jason. Good. So what's, uh, what's your world like uh, at this moment in terms of you know, just like talking to clients, looking at the market, like it's obviously an upside down, topsy-turvy world. But, you know, you've seen crises, you've seen cycles. Generally, what do you make of this one? The market has hope for tomorrow. And yeah. until huh. something breaks it, until there's a break in it, the market's going to keep, it'll just keep going higher. And investors are still being forced to go into the stock market. And the Federal Reserve is making it phenomenally easy, you know, it's easy money, easy money, and uh, I was just looking, a triple B bond, okay, mm. basically, you know, almost junk, is 2.7%. Well, people are willing to buy it because the 10-year is giving them 0.6%. Mm-hmm. So corporations are able to, you know, continue to issue the debt out there and it keeps getting bought. But in terms of, Jason, your specific question, because I know it has to do with, you know, where are we finding, what niche are we finding opportunities? We're finding plenty of opportunities, um, especially in these small caps. Like we just um, we just put a buy on Sally, Sally Beauty, S-B-H, yeah. 
small cap, did $2.26 last year, it was a dollar this year, and it's just a great undervalued company, but everybody thinks that COVID-19 is going to hit it a lot worse. The other one that I believe I have spoken about before is Valvoline, VVV. Yeah, Valvoline, $19 stock. There's 2.34% of dividend yield. We love it. We think could go to 24 to 25. I mean, it's right now 19 and a half dollars. So it's it's not like some double out there, but I'll take 2.3%. And people aren't buying new cars. Okay, so they're not buying new cars. Wait, wait, wait. I have to get in. Wait, I don't agree with you. I'm out on the roads, Hillary, and I feel like everyone is out there. I see all these new cars with, you know, you can tell they have the license plates, the temps, the temporary plates. um, And I just feel like a lot of people, because maybe they're not going to get on a plane, maybe they're more inclined to get in the car and go for a ride, and they feel safe in their cars. Well, they're they're in their cars, and they're going to need... Uh, an oil change, that's for sure, because they're going long distances. They're going to need new wipers, and, and that's exactly what Valvoline does. You can do it yourself or you can go into you know, one of their quick lube shops. But in terms of actual cars, look, Mercedes is doing 0% financing. The, the, the car companies are really struggling yeah. out there. Mm-hmm. Take a look at a Range Rover lot, and they're like practically doubled up one on top of the other. Now, there could be other cars. I also have a Subaru. Subaru is great, but, you know, uh, but I can tell you, Subaru is backed up in the service center, and that's because people, from what I'm seeing, aren't buying new cars. Now, every year, you know, we have an average of how many new cars are being bought, like 12 million, 18 million, and, uh, and we have yet to see, actually, what happens. But in the next six months to come, I believe we're going to see lots of traveling. You know, that's for sure, Carolyn. Yeah. But at the same time, we're going to see uh, people changing oil themselves, and there's that pent-up demand for it because they've been home for three months. So we've been talking a lot about tech, uh, Hillary, and tech, big tech especially, has had a nice run. But... I have to think that feels a little bit overbought at this point, knowing you a little bit. Like, that feels like some place that you might not be going is the fangs. Right. Well, it's actually interesting, Jason, what a great point, because with my team, we were just talking about Facebook. I said, why is, I want everyone to say, why is Facebook not down more, having lost all of these advertisers? And, of course, it's what percentage is, you know, Dove Soap and what, or Unilever and what percentage is Verizon. But, you know, the market's betting that over the long term, these advertisers are going to come back. You know, they just are. And big tech, the market's ignoring valuation. You know, they really are ignoring them. You know, that being said, it'll be interesting to see if Apple can get up there and hit new highs. Uh, you know, its high was $372 this year. It's at $365. let us see what happens uh, with, with Apple. That's the one I kind of am keeping my eye on. To me, that's just such an important indicator. Because uh, of why? Really where, of really where the consumer is at. Because, oh. right, I mean, consumers can either keep the one they have or they can buy a new one if they feel like they have money in their pocket, if they feel confident. So that's where that, you know, Apple is just a great proxy for understanding where the market stands. But in terms of tech, look, I'm very excited because Etsy hit 52-week new high today. eBay hit a 52-week high. Shopify. And you know what the best one of all? I know you'll love this. 
Chewy. Match group. Oh. Match oh. group. No, that's, okay? that's Match actually group. come to okay. our attention recently. Right. It's up 57% mm-hmm. this year. It's a $105 stock. And they have OkCupid. They have lots of swiping that you can do. But the bottom line is, I think people really fundamentally got lonely and realized how important family and relationships are when they were quarantined at home. And uh, I just think Match probably has potential to continue going up from here, especially people aren't going to be going into bars. You know, so even the people who are, I guess, maybe swiping more than looking for their long-term love <laughs> were also on Match. So uh, I would say that's one to really watch. So, so uh, Jason, Tech. Look for those texts uh, that uh, that are very related there, and and I'm um, not going to get into Chewy because now I think Chewy the online you know. Well, you um, could do that one for me because I, I Hillary I love I love dogs. You can do that. You got about twenty okay. seconds. Okay, Chewy <laughs> Chewy.com, C-H-W-Y. Everyone else, I started with Chewy at twenty three dollars, saying buy it, buy it, buy it, and I think Chewy has. Upside potential from here, Amazon would be foolish not to step in and buy Chewy.com or maybe even some big retailer. So uh, Chewy is, is more popular than ever before. And, uh, and, and Carol, what do you have? You have Afghans? What are kind of dogs I do you have? I have an Irish Terrier Scout. Yeah. Oh, okay. I guess if I you, saw a If you one. follow, um, <laughs> maybe most summer, I don't know if it's going to be the case this summer, but uh, most of August, uh, Carol's Twitter feed is just filled with pictures of Scout on a boat. So uh, <laughs> My family that, doesn't let me take pictures of them, so I've decided I'm going to yeah. make the dog Scout, Scout can't argue. All right. Uh, Hillary <laughs> Kramer, always good to catch up with you. Uh, really nice to hear your voice. Be well. Uh, look forward to seeing you on the other side of all this. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.